Brands and Barbed Wire is sponsored by Cattle Baron Cigars. Cattle Baron Cigars has a rich, natural, aromatic, classic tobacco flavor. Made with the finest tobacco, perfectly blended for the most pleasant, satisfying, long ash you can buy anywhere. Cattle Baron Cigars has consistently scored an excellent in the 90s on their reviews. For more in-depth information on Cattle Baron Cigars, listen to our Brian Mussard podcast episode and visit cattlebaroncigars.com. Welcome to Brands and Barbed Wire. I'm your host, Jim Johnson, and I'll take you behind the brands and we'll look through the barbed wire at some of the most iconic ranches in the world. So sit back, kick off your boots, and prepare to be entertained as I introduce you to those captivating stories from the legends of the brands and where there's no barbed wire that's going to hold us back. Welcome to today's episode of Brands and Barbed Wire. Today we get to visit with a ranch from a very unique part of the country and learn about how they've influenced the cattle industry and its history. Welcome Mike Adams from Adams Ranch in Florida. Welcome Mike to Brands and Barbed Wire. Jim, it's a real privilege to be here today and uh, I'm ready to get started. All right, good. Well, we're glad to have you. Mike, for our listeners that, that might not know who Mike Adams is or where Adams Ranch is, why don't you give us a little background on yourself and Adams Ranch? Sure. Uh, the ranch is located uh, about 90 miles southeast of Orlando, right on the coast, uh, outside of Fort Pierce. Kind of between Fort Pierce and Okeechobee is the headquarters. Okeechobee County, Highlands County, Osceola County is really the main area of cow-calf ranching in Florida. There's more cattle in those three counties than, than the rest of the state pretty much put together. Uh, a little bit about me, I'm a third generation, born and raised here on the ranch, went to school at the University of Florida, ag economics degree. Other than that, spent the, my life here on the ranch. Awesome. Well, I got to know um, you guys several years ago and visited a ranch a few times. It's an interesting place, an interesting part of, uh, of Florida. And a lot of people just don't realize how many cattle are in central Florida and then how big the ranches are. And so, you know, kind of tell us a little bit about the size and scope of the operation and then take us back to the beginning of Adams Ranch and how, how maybe your family got into the ranching in Florida. Because again, most people wouldn't consider Florida big ranching territory per se. Right. Roughly Adams Ranch, we encompass about uh, 44,000 acres. We're in uh, St. Lucie, Okeechobee, Osceola, and Madison counties. The biggest portions are down here in uh, Osceola County and St. Lucie is really the, the heart of our operation. And uh, that's kind of a subtropical region in Florida. So we do get some frost. Rarely we get a hard freeze, but it, it does happen. But generally you have a freeze and uh, a few days later it's back to 80 degrees. So that's uh, one of the things that we really do enjoy here. Being subtropical, we do tend to have a little bit of rain. Uh, our average rainfall is around 55 inches a year. You know, of course, you may get 10, 12 inches at a time, and that can upset the apple cart a bit, but uh, change your schedule around. Yep. What would be sort of your uh, primary forages down there and about how many acres per cow and maybe a couple things like that? We tried to run, being a cow-calf operation, we tried to run a pretty extensive operation, so a uh, few people try to limit uh, our inputs 
maybe not minimally, but, you know, to, to kind of what economically kind of works for us. And so we generally run uh, about a cow from, uh, you know, every three acres to five acres. Of course, we've got some land that's maybe in a cypress swamp or something where it's uh, occasional cow. Yeah, we're, we're going to come back to the cypress swamp here thing in, in a minute, I think. But I, I'm really curious as how your family got into ranching in Florida. I know lots of people down there have, have different stories how they get in, but just sort of how they got in and, and then how you ended up with sort of the breeds you have. And Well, it's uh, kind of a, a long path and uh, kind of started with my grandfather. Uh, he was raised in Defuniac Springs, Florida, up in the Panhandle. His father was a dirt farmer. Came time for him to uh, get his 40 acres and a mule. He kind of took a little different path, went to the University of Florida and got a law degree. And uh, I don't know if he got run out of North Florida because of that, but at any rate, he practiced law a little bit across the panhandle of Florida and then worked his way down the East Coast and came to uh, Fort Pierce and uh, it was the county seat and looked like a good place to uh, set up his law practice. Kind of felt like uh, there was a fair amount of business and uh, felt like the competition was not too too great since most attorneys at the time you know, really did not have a, a legal education in it probably had a lot of common sense at the time. But so he actually had a degree and that uh, really gave him a kind of a leg up. When would that have been, Mike? About roughly what, what time frame? Uh, he was born in 1899. And uh, so he came to Fort Pierce in the early 1920s. Oh, okay. And uh, of course, at that time, uh, you know, it was kind of the beginning of the, of the boom in Florida. It was exciting, just an exciting time. It was very dynamic. People were buying and selling land the same day. They'd buy a piece of property in the morning, sell it in the afternoon, make a profit. So he really developed that part of the practice as far as being a real estate attorney at the time. Of course, he got to practice that on up into when we had the big hurricanes in the 1926, 27. And that really was the beginning of the depression in Florida. Really knocked the real estate market kind of for a loop. Of course, then 1928 was kind of devastating for the rest of it. So here he was foreclosing on all the property that he had sold during the early 20s. He was selling it. And so it fed his family. Uh, he had a son, which was my father, and then my aunt. They raised their family here. Kind of about 1936 and uh, 1937 was, you know, one of his uh, law partners was the Carlson family, which was a real old cattle family here. And they partnered on a ranch and bought some of the initial property here in 1937. So that was really the start of the ranch. Grandfather, you know, wasn't a real cowboy type. But, you know, at the time, you know, everybody had to know how to ride a horse and, and that sort of thing. So uh, he and his partner, you know, made a go of the cattle business at the time. You know, kind of fast forward a few more years and he was tapped in to uh, sit on the Supreme Court of Florida. Mm-hmm. So he had quite a, a, a legal career. Wow, that's interesting. I didn't know that about your grandfather. That's right. It was really a good thing because when he bought the ranch in the 1930s, you know, he had the foresight, you know, that this land would actually be worth something someday. It was all open range at the time. So he was one of the first people to actually fence the property. So in fencing the property, you know, he started developing the land and the cattle together. And, you know, he brought in, you know, some new ideas and to uh, the development of the ranch. 
So, Mike, just just real quick, I mean, we may have some listeners that maybe don't know what open range means. Give us a brief uh, description of open range and then what happens when you fence. Okay, well, you know, back in the day, the whole area down here was open range. You know, if you were a farmer, citrus grower or something else, the only fences were built were to keep cattle out. And other than that, cattle had full range. If they were on the roads, you had to go around them. If you hit a cow, you had to pay for her. So times have changed <laughs> a bit. <laughs> they could wander all the way to the beach if they wanted to back then, right? <laughs> they could. They <laughs> yeah. could. Yep. Times have changed. Yep. It, times have changed. <laughs> you know, and your big ranchers, they would get together and uh, sort their cattle by brands, you know, and they would ride out the different pairs. You know, some of the big ranchers, you know, their cattle kind of would stay together in, in big herds and kind of whatever kind of accumulated, they would sort those out. We're kind of a very flat piece of ground where the ranch is headquartered at. As you go west, the elevation gets up higher and you get into kind of a different pine, flatwoods type uh, land. So that was good during the winter time. So a little bit higher, drier land. Uh, during the springtime, they would work their way kind of into our area, uh, down much lower, flatter, semi-marshland. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was a natural grassland, and so they would do very good in the spring. Then you'd, they'd work their way back into the high country during the, the summers. So, Mike, would he have met with any resistance at the time, or was it sort of becoming common practice to fence your properties at the time? It wasn't really common practice. You know, they did respect the fences, so there really wasn't a whole lot of that. I know uh, Dad had a story where he helped set up a ranch, well, 30,000-acre ranch south of us in Martin County. They went down there, and, and it, of course, it was all open range. You know, he went down and met with a Savage family down that way, and they were open range people and, and explained to him that this man had bought this property and they were going to tend on fencing it. They were going to bring a land manager down from Georgia. You know, they appreciated him coming and talking to him about it. He says, uh, don't worry about a thing. He says, we'll, we'll tell everybody that they're going to bring the meanest son of a bitch from Georgia down to police this property. <laughs> so they, they, you know, didn't have any problems down there. So it was uh, pretty interesting. <laughs> that sounds like your dad. So, um, <laughs> so your, your grandfather's Supreme Court judge in Florida and your dad's growing up now on the ranch. And so what got him interested in the ranching? And I assume, you know, based on what I know, at least, uh, you know, he was, he was very involved and it seemed to be something of a lot of interest to him. So bring us from, from your grandfather to your dad's involvement now. Sure. Dad, one of his chief jobs when he was first kind of introduced to ranching here, he was uh, in the fencing of the ranch. And he drove, you know, as a you know, 12, 13-year-old boy, the post wagon. And uh, kind of east of here, there was a burn of burnt cypress. And they cut cypress poles, and he would drive that, you know, pick up the poles and take them back out to the ranch, and, uh, and they'd build fence. And uh, I guess my grandfather gave him a cow, and she was very distinctive, and, and uh, he was always looking for that cow when he was making his rounds, getting the post. And he said he got to the point where he'd just dream about that cow. So it just got to, you know, it was just a passion with him. And, uh, you know, he loved that cow, and he always had an eye out for her. So, <laughs> and that was uh, kind of his uh, foray in the cattle industry. Mm-hmm as a boy 
And so growing up, uh, he's, you know, they spend a lot of time in Tallahassee, but he spends a lot of the summers down here on the ranch. Mm-hmm. You know, it just got to be a real passion for him. You know, I think it kind of melted his character a little bit. Uh, you know, he, he'd stay some with the Adams family in, in Defuniac Springs during the summer growing up as a little boy, some with his grandmother family, the Williams, you know, they were pretty much living on the land. So they would hunt and fish and stuff. And he got where he'd really enjoy staying with the Williamses because they'd get up when they felt like they needed to get up and go fish or go check the fish traps or go hunt squirrels or whatever else for, for dinner. And, uh, you know, the Adamses were much more regimented. They would uh, get up at dawn, you know, work the you know, crops and work in the field and have a big noon meal and then, you know, work, go back and work till dark. And ranching is somewhere in between there. You know, it was not quite as intense as that farming. He enjoyed, you know, the wildlife and uh, he he really appreciated and developed a real sense of uh, observing the wildlife and uh, the world and how they interacted with the cattle, cattle operation. So it really kind of set the tone for the ranch, I think. You know, since we do have such a strong kind of environmental kind of bent as far as how we look at things and what we do here on the ranch and how we handle things. Yeah, I know, you know, when I visited before, just the the photography that your that your your dad took of the wildlife and then that interaction with the ranch is just phenomenal to see and and just a real blessing to be able to see some of that in his vision or his eye captured in those pictures. And so I think there's probably on your website, there'd be a lot of pictures. We can get to it in a little bit, but there's a lot of those pictures on there, isn't there? There are. So you'll be able to get a good idea of uh, what our country looks like down here. So your dad, what made him sort of want to move farther into ranching and maybe not follow in his dad's footsteps of being an attorney? Uh, it's, It's kind of funny. You know, everybody expected him to. You know, he had a grade school teacher. She wanted him to give a speech. He just told her, he says, he says, I don't need to really learn how to talk. He says, I'll just talk to the cows. He says, they don't care. <laughs> anyway, I, I don't know anybody that gave more speeches than my dad mm-hmm. at, at the end of his life. So it's really, really one of those things you just never know. <laughs> right. Be careful what you say when you're in grade school. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. So anyway, uh, he spent some time in the service, officer training school at the end of World War II. And uh, right before he shipped out, the war ended. And uh, so he finished up at the University of Florida going to school and I guess about 47. Anyway, my dad got a call and, you know, he had told that uh, my grandfather that he wanted to come back to the ranch after after his stint in the service and school. And he says, well, you know, you may want to come back home because this was the hurricane of 1947. Everything's underwater. So you really need to see that before you make that final determination. So uh, he skipped graduation, came back here, and uh, just about never left. You know, this was kind of his driving force and his passion in life was to develop, uh, you know, a good ranch, cattle that would thrive in our environment. And I think he succeeded all the way around in those, in his goals there. Yeah, it sure seems like it. I know um, at what point did he sort of really start focusing on the genetic side of it and then the breeds and at the time what were the breeds that that he would have come back to and then and then what developed since then well when my grandfather started the ranch it was essentially with cracker cattle 
you're going to have to tell people what cracker cattle are. <laughs> we're, okay. we're, we're talking to people that, that might not be, be uh, Florida natives that, that might want to know what a cracker cow is. Sure. One of the first cattle that were, was brought to the United States came to Florida by the Spaniards. You know, they settled in St. Augustine during the different wars and different things. You know, most of those cattle really went wild, basically came, became a subspecies of whatever the Spanish cattle were. So those cattle were the, the heart of, the, of what we call the cracker cattle because they had to survive out here with uh, really no help. What help they probably got was a Seminole or somebody trying to put an arrow in them for dinner. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, they got wild and pretty much went through a phase where they were just wild cattle just to get someone out there to claim them, essentially. Yeah, so similar to, to what we hear of, of Old West stories about cattle that were unbranded or whatever, somebody just had to claim them. How did they get the name Cracker? Uh, you know, the early, you know, Florida cattlemen used long whips, you know, 10, 12 feet long. When you're covering a lot of our woods here, you know, you may not be able to see that far away, but you can hear a long way, especially in the morning. So you could hear three or four men could spread out across there with their whips and you could hear where each one of them was. And so that's where the cracker, I think, had descended from. Yeah, that is a cracking of the whip that they could hear and then figure out where they were and then drive cattle with them as well. That's right. Okay. So, uh, you know, they would bunch them up and that way they, then they could herd them from there. You know, if they're driving a long way, you might uh, encourage them along a little bit with their whip. Those uh, early crackers, they could do about anything on, from a horse with a whip, you know, from killing snakes to turning a bad bull back. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. I would love to have seen that. Are there s- some guys that still do that in Florida today? They do. A lot of our cowboys still carry a whip on their horses now. Yeah, interesting. So you've got a bunch of cracker cows on the on the ranch. From there, you wanted to improve them, and and your dad wanted to improve them. So how did he do that? Well, you know, probably through in the early 40s, they introduced ramen cattle to to those cracker cattle. So by the time dad really got uh, involved with the operation, a lot of the cattle were mostly ramen. You know, even at that time, your ramen cattle were discriminated against in the marketplace by having the hump, meat quality, and different things. So he decided he would bring some uh, Hereford cattle in. He brought some cattle in from the CK Ranch in Kansas. Those mostly Hereford bulls, you know, he'd get a train car load of them and turn them out here. And uh, after a year, you know, he said over half of them would die the first year from uh, just anaplasmosis, different diseases, insects that we have here, just uh, not adapted to the environment. And that probably helped focus himself on you know, the importance of having cattle that are bred for your environment. He was able to get, you know, enough of those early first cross Brayfords and saw that they were much superior to either the Herefords or the Brock down here. And uh, so that led him on a path, you know, trying to find the right mix. You know, your half-blood still had a bit of a hump, did another cross of uh, Hereford on top of that, came up with roughly a 5H, 3H mix of you know, Hereford uh, 3H Brahmin. 3H Brahmin gave them enough heat tolerance that they did well here. The 5H pretty well, you know, set the kind of meat characteristics more towards the Hereford side, kind of fit the marketplace at the time. You know, he kept that kind of breeding regime until uh, about 1969. It was 
recognized by the USDA as the Brayford breed. So we're the foundation herd of the Brayford breed here. Wow. So you guys actually started the Brayford breed there at Adams Ranch in, in Florida. We did. And uh, it wasn't long after that, he started the International Brayford Association. And it's now, you know, morphed uh, all the way back into United Brayford breeders now. It's been an interesting thing. And I, I believe people that uh, really like their Brayford cattle, they, they, they're hard to dissuade yeah. <laughs> from anything else. Because uh, they're easy to work. You know, people ask me about, you know, their temperament and whatnot. And I said, well, you know, they're pretty smart. And uh, they, they'll treat you just like you treat them. <laughs> so be careful. <laughs> and, uh, so you can treat them rough and, uh, and they can be hard to handle. Right, right. So what would that registry be now? Do you know what the Brayford registry would be uh, worldwide, roughly? Not right off, but it was kind of the other twist of the coin was there was a gentleman with the first name of Adam in Australia who started a Brayford registry there. And it was very close to the same time that this was established here in the United States. Oh, so they've got a registry there. Uh, Brazil has uh, quite a Brayford following in, in Brazil, uh, South Africa. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it, it is worldwide. Yeah, it'd be tens of thousands anyway, wouldn't it? I'm sure if you combined all those cattle together, there would be. Wow. So after Brayford's and you know, you're, you're enjoying some of that notoriety and, and success, what, what happened then? You know, we, we were feeding a few animals. You know, here in Florida, we're so far removed from the feed laws, the feeding industry, the whole side of, of our industry. So we retained ownership in some of our Brayford's. They would grade 35, 40% choice. You know, the rest would be kind of select. And uh, we felt like, in the early 90s, we needed, the industry was demanding more than that. Mm-hmm. So uh, we kind of looked at the genetics that we had. Dad was looking at some of the other breeders around and, and felt like, you know, the Red Angus would certainly bring more marbling to the table. And uh, that would address kind of boosting our selects up from uh, selects to choice. And then, you know, some of the gainability and whatnot, we felt like the Geltbees would kind of fill a niche there. They tend to bring a lot more thickness in body and through the round to our cattle and a little bit more red meat. So that's kind of where we've morphed into creating the composites that we have. You know, we created what we call the RAB composite and our gel composite. And then we took those and interstate and made those, what we call the AB composite. And those cattle uh, had really performed well for us. You know, I thought we'd get a real big boost in weaning weights. We really didn't. Uh, our Brayfords, we've, we've selected all those years, you know, for cattle that would wean heavily. So that's the way Florida cattle people got paid was how many pounds they can put on the truck and send to a feedlot out west. So, uh, you know, our cattle weaned heavily anyway. So we didn't gain a lot there, but uh, we did gain in carcass characteristics. And that has been really hugely important. And I think the Gelby tend to increase the fertility a little bit of that particular cross too, because uh, we gained a little bit in early maturity. Productivity-wise, we probably gained another 25% in our production just because of that, because you can get your cattle bred as early as the calve at two, but if they don't calve really early, you, you can't hardly get them to breed them at twos to calve at three. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, these AB, what we call the AB, so they, they've been a real boost for us in productivity there. So, Mike, you're back on the ranch at this point. Then, when you when you started developing this uh, composites, kind of fill us in on between the early '70s, I guess, when you were enjoying the Brayford thing, and in the '90s, when did you come back, and what made you decide to come back to the ranch? Probably the same reason Dad did. I was just <laughs> I grew up doing this. And I love the life that you have out here with nature, love working with animals, working with horses. It was uh, just kind of an easy thing to fall into, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's a smart thing to do or not, I don't know, but it was right for me. Yep. So, uh, you know, back in uh, University of Florida, I left in kind of 77, we had our first Brayford sale in 79. So we had our first purebred sale in 79, you know, that was successful. We've kind of, we're focused in, you know, a fair amount on the purebred end, but still, and even today, we're still focused being a cow-calf producer, commercial meat industry. So that's still a strong focus. And I think that's one of the big drivers of the Brayford is because that focus is still still there. And it's so important because if they're not meaningful for the commercial producer, you know, they don't have a lot of meaning or or don't have a place in our industry anymore. Yeah. You're home on the ranch and you and your dad developed the composite, different composite lines that you have. And, and you have an annual sale, if I remember, and, and where you sell some of those bulls and you have, I assume a seed stock population. And then from there you take those bulls and use them yourself as well as sell some on, on your own cattle. And that's true. Uh, most, most everything we use here on the ranch uh, was raised here. So we don't bring a lot of out, outside cattle in. We did to bring, had to with the Red Angus and Geltbees. We, we brought those cattle in, primarily bulls on the sire side. And uh, we've kind of, you know, genetically, we've always focused on tracking our bulls more so than individual cows. And in, in doing so, it's, uh, it's kind of an extensive way to, you know, do it is not so intensive where you're tracking, trying to track each individual animal. Uh, we do different sire groups and in, uh, in our breeding. So we'll breed a bunch of half brothers in a pasture or particularly here on the home ranch, as far as our purebred operations go. And uh, that way we have a good idea of what genetics are on the sire side and uh, we'll track them uh, right on. Your dad, I know was pretty progressive and, and was doing some early DNA work and, you know, on those composites to sort of figure out which ones were the better ones. And with that early DNA work and the composite, I mean, he sort of was a forerunner in, in what we know is a lot of the genomic technology today. But he was, he was like on the cutting edge of, of a lot of those types of things, the composite breeding and the DNA and some things like that, wasn't he? Absolutely. And uh, that's one thing about my grandfather and my father are very progressive. They they always were very forward thinkers, not afraid of change. And that's one of the real cruxes that you can get into, particularly in agriculture, is uh, you can get into kind of a rut where you, mm-hmm. you, you can't see how to, how to make that next change. And uh, everything in agriculture changes so fast. The DNA industry has changed, you know, a thousand fold probably since the early, you know, or late nineties when they first kind of started out with gene star testing and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so it's pretty incredible as to uh, what they can kind of do D- DNA wise. So uh, that is certainly 
uh, something you can't hardly argue with is uh, the DNA. You can, you can argue a lot of things. Dad had a quote about kids, you know, and parents that criticize their kids for maybe being stupid. And he says, well, you know, if you knew anything about DNA, you wouldn't, you wouldn't say that about your kids. <laughs> yeah, they got it from somewhere, right? And so, uh, right. They get it from somewhere. Yeah. And so good. I, um, I know we're going to have some, uh, some listeners that, and, and every time I talk about Florida ranching with someone that the first thing that comes up is, is alligators. You know, people think of Florida and Florida ranching. They, they think of the, the alligators. And I told you, we come back to those cypress swamps, uh, for a couple different reasons, but, but I'm, I'm sure those swamps have a few gators in them and then the cypress trees as well. But, uh, tell us a little bit about managing the predatory, uh, species down there in Florida of the, of the alligator. A lot of other ranchers shoot a lot of their big alligators just because they're, you know, they're going to eat all my cows or, or whatever. And, and, and they are subject to, there's no doubt. And occasionally we have gotten a gator that has taken some calves. Generally, we'll put him in our museum and uh, kind of take care of that problem. But um, all in all, uh, if you don't mess with them, they won't mess with you. There's a lot of other things for them to eat in Florida other than than your cattle. Uh, You've got raccoons. Of course, we have lots of turtles and different things in the canals. So there's lots of natural food for them anyway. He's kind of like a Brayford, uh, a Brayford bull. If you don't mess with him, he won't mess with you, huh? That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's good. So um, the other thing I've always been amazed with down there were some of the sunken cypress trees and then some of the, the wood that comes out of them. And particularly when you go to an Adams Ranch sale and that great big one piece of sunken cypress drops from the ceiling and makes a table. I mean, that thing's always been... Always something that has amazed me as well. It is. Uh, it's, uh, it's amazing because you look around Florida, you don't see that many big trees. But uh, cypress, and of course, my generation didn't see a lot of big trees either because they essentially were harvested, you know, back in the, in the 20s and 30s. And there were some tremendously big cypress trees. And fortunately, we, we've been able to uh, associate with some, people that have some of these sunken logs. And uh, so we've had to really enjoy some of these large cypress trees and turned into tables. A lot of our wood work here on the ranch is with cypress. Cypress is very insect resistant down here. Termites will eat everything else up except for uh, cypress. Mm. So uh, it's uh, it's a very good wood for us. Indians, everybody have used, uh, you know, the cypress trees uh, here. Uh, either for their dugout canoes or just to live with day to day. And as I understood it, when I asked about it a while back, when those trees would fall and, and, and fall into the swamp, it was almost like they preserved them underwater. So you could go find some of those big cypress trees and, and, uh, and harvest them still. You can. And uh, some of the rivers up in North Florida, they had cut them, float them down the river. Some of them didn't float and they just sank. And so they've been dredged up. We've been underwater a hundred years and uh, typically, you know, a big log like that would take 10, 20 years to dry out by itself, but it's cured underwater. And when they take it up out of the water, the water kind of runs out in, you know, a year's time, it's uh, dry enough in, to, to work with. Oh, wow. So it's really amazing. Yeah. there It's a really beautiful wood too, if you haven't seen it. So, so now, um, 
Mike, as, as we sort of start winding down here a little bit, uh, tell us a little bit about Adams Ranch today. You know, I think uh, your grandfather, your dad, but but it's sort of become pretty large family operation now, hasn't it? It is. I've got two other brothers in the operation. And uh, of course, we're getting to be the old <laughs> the old guard. So, you know, we're, we're looking to the new guard. And it has changed the last few years. We developed the, the A-beef mm-hmm. back about 2015. You know, we thought, well, we know enough about the cow business. We, you know, we'll retain ownership. So we, we kind of have a, a fellow up in uh, Chiefland, Florida, that was feeding a lot of light calves and kind of backgrounding them before shipping them out west. So he knew how to feed cattle pretty well. And uh, we sent him some of our cattle to, to feed out. And uh, one of our local packing houses up there, we're starting to process fat cattle. So we went and kind of made that step just to see how well our, you know, A-beef did down here. We were really pleasantly surprised. You know, our A-beef cattle performed well. You know, they were up around uh, 70% choice, you know, whereas our breakers weren't quite that high. The A-beef is, is just for our listeners, the A-beef is a... Uh four breed composite of the of the Brayford, the Gelfie and the and the Red Angus would have the four would sort of be Brahmin, Hereford, Gelfie and Red Angus in that four breed composite. That's right. And uh they they really are working well for us right now. So anyway, we've had some issues of how to market them, you know, we talked to Publix and said, "Well, you know, you can send us your steaks." <laughs> that doesn't take very you know, there's 30% of your animal taken care of, but they said, well, we, we can't pay you a premium until you sell in, in, in Publix a while. And, you know, if you develop a following, you know, we'll, you know, you can develop a premium in your market. We knew pretty quick that's not going to work for us because, you know, it simply costs more to finish cattle in Florida than it does in the grain belt, Panhandle of Texas. May save some on travel and gas, but still at the end of the day, the feeding cost kind of drives everything. About that time, uh, my older brother was introduced to uh, Whole Foods and talked and talked to them about uh, our operation, and they wanted to see it. So uh, Whole Foods came and sent their man, a couple people here, and we had lunch, and and uh, they said, well, you know, you have to qualify our step program. You know, they can't have antibiotics, they can't have hormones. You know, they've got to be on pasture. And I said, well, you know, that's exactly what we do. He says, well, you know. The first step you got to do is you got to get a third party verifier to come in and, you know, and said, you know, we would love to work with you. And not only that, we'll, we'll start you at a premium. And so, heck, you know, that seemed like that was a huge problem solved. So that was really our big step into building a market here in Florida around our cattle. Really been a great relationship with Whole Foods. Another gentleman came to Florida, spent a lot of money, is uh, Frank Stronage, and he started a grass-fed program and built a, a processing facility, brand new processing facility back in, you know, 2017-18. So it was a, a great time because the initial packing facility we started with closed up. Mm-hmm. So we stepped right in there, and that really filled in the niche there. They had to certified their their operation for Whole Foods as well. And being a brand new operation, they were able to do that. So, you know, we were really very fortunate to have everything kind of come together at that time because there really, you know, wasn't a full-time packer of fat cattle. The only processors in Florida dealt with, you know, cold cows. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there just wasn't, 
you know, if you send a fat cow to the Okeechobee livestock market, well, you know, they would discount him another 30% because there's no market here for it. Right. Because they just could. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At the same time, he kind of expanded into direct marketing with the, you know, with the advent of the pandemic. We've run into uh, direct marketing. We're trying to market here locally. We have a great farmer's market here in Fort Pierce. And uh, so we've taken a little bit of a foothold there and uh, brought in a couple more family members. And then Lee's daughter is uh, very active in that. Uh, His son and my son and my brother's son are all working on the different operations now. So we've got the next generation uh, kind of in place, continue to, to, to like this lifestyle, this kind of work. They've got a great place to live. I can't uh, imagine having to dig my way through the snow or <laughs> some, some people do. And uh, so we're, we're in that regard, we're blessed, but we, you know, we do have the other side where we have a hurricane or something of that nature, but it gets a little warm there in the summertime. I'm sure it doesn't it. It does, you know, with our humidity, uh, you know, if we get up in the high nineties, you've got uh, 80% humidity, mm-hmm. it can be pretty cycling. So that's that's one of the reasons why you need cattle and horses and men that are adapted to our environment. Yeah, you bet. So, so Mike, you still have a, an annual bull sale. Tell us, uh, tell us about that and when that is and what you offer. We do. Uh, it'll be the second Thursday in November. We'll roughly sell about uh, 80 bulls, probably about 150 females and red heifers, and then maybe 100 yearling heifers. So we still want to cater to, uh, you know, the commercial cattleman. And that's kind of been the, the mindset. We want to keep our cattle affordable. We've taken a step to a couple of years before the pandemic. We you know we started with DV auctions. Now we're utilizing cattle in motion. Mm-hmm. So uh, people don't have to be here live uh, to participate and uh, save them a, you know, day's, day's drive for a lot of people. I think that's that's a great uh, technology to to do sales, but uh, but if you ever get a chance to to go down and and see a really neat sale, a really neat sale barn. I my first time there, I remember uh, the sale barn was just open, and I was I've never been to a sale barn that was open and and all wood, and and it's just a really neat facility and beautiful part of the country and beautiful ranch. And I know you guys would would obviously host anybody that wanted to come down for a ranch tour and, and really educate people on Florida ranching and, and the culture and some of those things. We do. And, uh, you know, yesterday we had, I think, about uh, 65 folks from Alabama Wow. Uh, with Farm Bureau came through. So uh, we enjoyed having them. Anyway, it's a, it's a great opportunity, you know, for us to meet a lot of people that we would meet as well. So we, we try to keep an open door. Do you host the occasional celebrity coming through there too? Uh, we've been known to. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, yeah. I know uh, dad enjoyed visiting with uh, Robert Duvall's. Yep. And uh, they had some interesting conversations. <laughs> <laughs> I bet that's like any, any of them that we can share on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I tell you, you know, I, I guess in, uh, in Lonesome Dove, there was Robert Duvall was being chased by Indians. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, he stopped his horse and uh, out there on the plains and stuck a knife in him and laid him down. And uh, dad says, 
says, I can't believe they let you do that. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, that's funny. It it looked pretty realistic to him. That's right. That's right. and, you know, but uh, it's a, it's amazing what you can do on TV. But. Well, and I think I was there one time when um, Emerald Agassi was at your sale and was in the box, right? He was. He was in the box, and uh, he, he actually put on a cooking demonstration as well the day before. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he really, uh, he really put on a show. Well, and I remember w- w- they were sitting there, and a bull came through, and, and, and like bulls will do, he... Um, kick the box or something like that. And Emerald goes, boom. <laughs> and so <laughs> he did. He that went off funny. with his trademark. Bam. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, so Mike, uh, as we wrap up here, tell us sort of, um, it's obviously the obvious to me that innovation has been part of your family. And as you move through, you know, your dad and now even you guys going direct to, to the, the customer and, and being innovative in that way, you know, where do you see Adams ranch going and, you know, and fitting into the beef industry and do you have any sort of um, a vision for, for the ranch and where you guys are going to be moving to? Well, you know, our track with the ranch is there is a, a downside to Florida. And one of them is, is the population. They don't just build one house, they build a thousand houses. And so the ground that we have to work with is uh, certainly under pressure from development and of course your natural resources from water and everything else, then you catch a lot of blame for water runoff that, you know, maybe not your problem, but uh, you know, the population certainly has the popular vote and uh, that can hurt you regulation wise. Mm So, you know, regulation, you know, population growth is something that's uh, on the horizon. That's just not going to get any better. That's one of the reasons why we have such an outreach program here on the ranch is to show people what we do, how we do it, and how we interact with the environment here. You know, it's so important for us to leave a legacy for our kids. You know, we want to take care of the land. We want to take care of the water and the wildlife. And it's hard to do if you're going to put houses all over it. So we're looking at uh, conservation easements and different things. So we can guarantee that there are areas out here that won't be developed we can leave that, you know, maybe a hundred years from now, they'll still be able to come to Adams Ranch, see men on horseback herding cattle. That would be a great, great thing to see a hundred years from now. Yeah. Great legacy for sure. Well, Mike, tell us if some of our listeners want to learn a little bit more about Adams Ranch and cattle and, and especially see some of the photography of that your dad took and those types of things. How would they go about doing that? Uh, they can go to adamsranch.com. That'll carry you to our website and uh, it'll give you some of the history of the ranch in uh, different aspects. We also have another website, Adams Ranch Natural Beef. Of course, the two two websites are kind of merged together, but uh you want to order meat online, you can, or you can get some idea of uh, how that program is working. But uh, it's really been eye-opening to see when we made that leap, we thought we knew something about the cattle industry. But when we made that leap from uh, finishing our cattle to processing and direct to consumer, that's been just a whole nother education. And uh, you know, so we're, we're working on our doctoral degree on that now. <laughs> Great. It's, uh, it's really, really been a, a learning curve. Yeah. Mike, I really appreciate your time today. And thanks for, for taking the time to educate myself and, and, and our listeners on Adams Ranch and what you guys have going on. And 
It's been a real pleasure and I really, really appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Jim. And uh, you're a great service to uh, the cattle industry. You know, I appreciate you what you're doing. Look forward to seeing you down here next time. Yeah, I need to get down there in November. It's been a while since I've been to uh, Dale and that's always been a highlight of of my trip to Florida. So uh, I'll try to make sure I get down there this November. I know. We'll probably make you work again. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Jim. For our producer, Carlos Cheraboga, I'm your host, Jim Johnson. God bless and thank you for listening to Brands and Barbed Wire. The Brands and Barbed Wire podcast can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share. You can also find additional content at our Brands and Barbed Wire Facebook page and at brandsandbarbwire.com. We hope you enjoyed Brands and Barbed Wire. The Brands and Barbed Wire podcast is sponsored by JMAR Genetics, cattle made to grow and grade. The annual New Beginnings Bull and Female Sale will be held April 21st on DV Auction. Visit jmargenetics.com for more information.